Hey, we're back with Fluid Truth. This is Fluid Truth, and I'm your host, attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of what equity looks and feels like from varying perspectives. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. This conversation is really fabulous. I sit down with my friend, Ms. Natasha Noel, who is consultant and entrepreneur. We have a great conversation all about Black leadership, its presence, and sometimes lack of presence. Without much ado, we're going to jump right into that conversation. You have it right here, here at Fluid Truth. Welcome back to Fluid Truth. We have an amazing guest for this show. So we have Ms. Natasha Noel. She is the founder and principal consultant of Meetup. And in addition to being the uh, founder and principal consultant, she is both a writer and a poet. So I will tell you that Natasha and I have had many couch conversations. Yes, we have. We've worked together in another capacity for a number of years, and we would get a chance to sit down together and kind of chop it up and break up our experiences. So this is going to be just like the couch conversation. But Natasha, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Shirley. So good to be here. I am glad that you're chatting with me. So before we kind of dive into the crux of the conversation, which is equity, but before we do that, Mm. tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me your history in terms of your education, where you came up from, where are you from, <laughs> where do you call home? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you know, it was a cold December day. See, she's a writer. <laughs> she is definitely a writer. <laughs> but no, I was um, born in New York, but raised in Connecticut, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And, um, you know, went through schooling there. I was born to Haitian immigrant parents. Um, so definitely have that kind of upbringing of <laughs> very strict household, church-going folks, um, but who believe deeply in education. So um, definitely fortunate. You know, me and my siblings were, you know, the first generation to go to college. Um, I'm the first in my family to get a master's degree um, and got a chance to um, just get out of Bridgeport a little bit because of school. So I went to Boston university for undergrad went to brown university for grad um and then i found my way back here um after grad school back in bridgeport um in education mostly well it started off being in education and then it just spiraled into what it is now so did i capture you did you did so tell me about mita mita oh gosh first of all i love that you said it Correctly, look at you speaking Creole. Thank you. I'm look at you. I'm working my accent. Because Mita is a Creole word that means in between. Love it. Um, and when I first started my consulting, you know, like most things by chance, you know, I fell into it where there was a, an, a, a small nonprofit organization in Bridgeport that needed some help. And I was beginning to understand this idea of having a business and everyone should have at least, you know, one business. <clears throat> um, so not knowing what it means to have a business, I just, you know, incorporated the name and um, I started saying, I guess I'm a consultant. <laughs> so <laughs> to sound more official and Mita um, was something, uh, a, na- uh, a name that um, I had played around with with other things I was thinking about, other projects I had. And um, it just means in between, literally a Creole word for in between. Um, 
And uh, with the consulting, it basically it translates really nicely because as a consultant, I'm in between where you are as an organization and where you want to go. That's beautiful. And I like to think that I bridge the gap <laughs> between the two. So I help organizations, nonprofits, small um, startup nonprofits, and um, even small businesses um, go from where they, like, you know, say they're just getting started, they're in their first three years, um, and they want to expand or grow. Um, so I work with them to do so. I like that. Yeah. As the in-between to get them from point A to point B. I love that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're in this amazing capacity to work with individuals and you work with them in their dreams and you work with them in their goals yes. and you help to point them in the direction of desire. Mm. But you have some story, I'm certain, and some experiences that may not have proven that everything is equitable in our desires. Mm. So again, I like to talk about equity on this show and mm. it's equity in all capacities from all perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's not solely social justice. I started out just talking solely about social justice, and that's very important to me. And I think, truthfully, to be transparent, I think it all kind of winds back to a social justice justice aspect yes, of yes. equitable pra- practices. Mm-hmm. But um, not only on the criminal side, not just on the legal side, but mm-hmm. there is equity and sometimes inequity that's far-reaching. Mm-hmm. So that's what the I like to capture as a conversation. Right. So thinking about that, the people that you're helping right now and some mm-hmm. of the clients that you have right now, how do you coach them into equitable practices in an inequitable world and inequitable mm. scenarios and equitable situations? How do you coach them into that space? Yeah, that, that definitely is um, <laughs> tough because a lot of the work that my clients do is very much in that space of trying to bridge the gap of inequity um, because many times they're fighting a cause that has created some kind of social <laughs> inequity. Right. Right. Um, you know, black children not having the same quality education, um, access to education um, as their um, white counterparts, you know. Um, you know, uh, with one of my, my first client who I still have three years later, um, mental health um, and that not being accessible to um, a lot of times people of color. Um, the information being as easily accessible as to where to get um, help for mental health. I think we're doing a lot better as a country around it, but um, there's still so much more growth needed. Um, And when you do finally, let's say, uh, have the information, okay, I need some counseling, I need some help, finding someone who understands your perspective and your your experience, um, so have finding a, a, a social worker, a therapist of color right. is another layer. So that's the kind of work that my clients do. And um, coaching them through that, it's like, at the end of the day, we are dealt a certain card. <laughs> um, and while we can't, no one organization can fix any one problem, um, I like to coach my clients to not add to it. <laughs> And not make it worse by not doing the best you can with what you have, not using your resources the best you can, not reaching or serving the people that you are serving the best you can. If it's the 25 kids in your program, how do we serve them the best we can so that that's 25 lives who will touch 25,000 others throughout their lifetime, you know? Um, So it's hard. It definitely is hard. It definitely is not something that happens overnight or there's not a silver bullet as to what you can tell an organization to um, 
do the work in a way that that closes this gap completely but we can do our part you know? I like that and it sounds like what you're advocating is being a part of the solution part of the solution so in right. a very in your own way right mm-hmm. right so staying in our lane and not to say that we're playing small I dare not make that suggestion mm-hmm. but just kind of staying in your lane of work and in your lane of expertise and in your right. lane of skill set so what for you mm-hmm. as a coaching consultant and also for for those that you're coaching for those businesses that you're elevating yeah. so that's really exciting and when I think about um, you made a point a second ago about mental health mm-hmm. and the pandemic mm. it really exacerbated that it really oh, yeah. o- kind of like blew it open mm-hmm. and we see this gap in mental health and the right. access to services right access to um, therapy access to clinicians yeah. so I'm proud of Connecticut I will kind of put that plug in right now because mm-hmm. we did a little bit more and um, over the legislative session this past one, mm. we expanded coverage and access and we put some money to it. Nice. So hopefully that can um, help to kind of smooth over some of these inequities, mm-hmm. but they exist and we can't pretend like they don't exist. So if we don't address them with these resources, then right. for all these things that we're seeing, then we just don't e- even get a chance to properly put that, you know, that stopgap in there. Right. And, um, you know, one of the, ex- so you're, <clears throat> you, you have a really unique um, vantage point from, you know, yeah. at the house, you know, right. and you see kind of what the legislators mm-hmm. and what politicians want to happen right. and where money goes. Right. And I'm on the end at, in the, at, at the ground level with the community members who's looking for this money. And it's like, where is the money? So once they allocate it, what I found is, you know who gets it and um who monitors who gets it and who monitors how it's really helping the people is where i think some gaps <laughs> may exist um and while the intentions are all there to serve the people in a certain way um it's a it's really a fascinating process how money comes down into the communities so you raise this point right now, and it seems like this perfect opening to determine and discuss, would it be different if black leaders were the ones allocating these funds? Mm-hmm. Would it look different if we had at the helm of these um, institutions and at the helm of some of the legislative, um, uh, what you call it, the le- legislative um, appointments and mm-hmm. the legislative positions? Mm-hmm. Would it be different if these were people of color who were in charge. So I know a lot of what we're thinking about in terms of this conversation and the equity conversation mm-hmm. hedges on black leadership mm-hmm. and or people of color in positions of leadership. Mm-hmm. But before we kind of jump into that, what's your take? Would it look different? Would our communities fare a little differently? Would your clients and the, the work that your clients are doing, mm-hmm. would that be impacted differently if there were leaders at the helm that were people of color? I, I'm not going to say a blanket yes, absolutely, but yes, it would look different, but I do want to caution, it's not just about having a black leader. My thing is not just, so put black people in everything, or black, it's not about just being black, although that's very, very important, because the black experience is a unique experience that should be at every table that's making decisions, because if you are not of that, you know, background, you do not know the experience, so you cannot speak to it, you can't, um, you know you just won't understand it in the same intimate way as a black person but 
um, it's not just about being black either, you know? If you're a black person, but you're raised in a in Westport or Greenwich, you won't know what's happening in Bridgeport. You won't know, and you know, you're even, you're disconnected from what's happening in certain communities. So it's about being a, a person of color or of different ethnicities from that community that we're trying to serve. Um, so you can't not be from Bridgeport and say you're gonna, <laughs> like you know what's going on in Bridgeport. You may hear about it, you know, you may have an understanding from someone else's a- account of it, um, but you, the same way, you know, a Bridgeport person don't know, you know, they can hear about what's going on in Hartford, but they won't know. So I think it's just a matter of the re- representation on the table is not only of different races, but it's of the different experiences of the people from that community. Um, and therefore, because someone from Bridgeport will know other Bridgeport organizations, know other Bridgeport people. Someone from New Haven will know the New Haven people. Um, and I think that's what is important, is having people around the table that in, that knows the issues and knows the people of that community closely. Um, and so the first layer being, you know, persons of color being represented because that's a unique experience in and of itself, but then persons of color from those communities. I, like I want to add, you know, make yeah. sure like, because sometimes that's where tokenism come in, you know. Oh, oh, well, we do got a black person. Okay, where's black person? What is that black person story? Because every black people, every black person is not the same. <laughs> we are not think, a monolith. Where's that microphone? I'm in a microphone. We are every not black a monolith. It is not the same. Mm-mm. So, uh, you know, that's another caution is, is the idea that, oh, there is black people on, you know. Okay, then what is their story, you know. And I love that. Where they're from. I love that because um, I emphasize stories and narratives. That's Mm. part of my push for equity. I think that when we share our stories and we share our narratives, we get this opportunity to build these bridges of equity, hopefully, Mm -hmm. and we get a chance to address some issues that remain. I don't know if we're scared. I don't know if, if there's a hesitation to address some blaring and huge issues but when we share our story we get a chance to easily kind of ease into that space right but going back to what you said for just a second though um what i'm hearing though is this diversity and this diversity around the table for decision making so perhaps we don't need necessarily a black person in leadership positions but you need representation from our communities we need representation of our experiences we need representation of what our community looks like Mm -hmm. and so keeping that in mind how would you um how would you think about your experiences? Go mm-hmm. ahead, jump in first. Yeah, no, I definitely, you know, we do need black people at the table. Okay. But black people with those experiences, not just. Gotcha. I think I, what I'm trying to clarify is it, it just can't be black people for the sake of a black person. Gotcha. It's gotcha. a black person with the experience um, of the community and of the space that we're trying to address. Oh, that's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. And I'm glad for that clarity, too, mm-hmm. because that's vastly different than just, you know, Right, because it could be a white person in Bridgeport, but mm-hmm. a white per- again, a white person from Bridgeport won't have the same experience as a black person, Very true. Um, you know, from that community. So I think it's 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 both. It's black and, not just black or. I like that. Mm-hmm. Black and. You know I'm about to write that down. Uh-huh. Black and. But, um, <laughs> so what have your experiences kind of um, opened up for you? And what kind of uh, pathways have they opened your experiences having black leadership having diversity of leadership in any kind of facet from you know from your younger years to having your own company and being a consultant founder in your own company hmm how have my experiences been impacted by black leadership or lack thereof or lack thereof 
I mean, it's a journey I am still on. <laughs> I'm trying to understand um, how, not understand, but like trying to answer that question mm-hmm. <laughs> of black leadership because for a lot, a lot of, a lot, I guess a lot of my life, I, I just wasn't aware of it. Um, or at least its impact until I realized how, and it's, you know, not, it's not until probably after college, I just began to replay experiences in my life. And I'm like, wow, so there wasn't a black person in, in a lot of key areas of my life. There were black people though, you know? So I've always, you know, growing up in Bridgeport, you can't avoid being around black people. We're all around, went to high school, um, you know, mostly black, mostly um, Portuguese, Latino, um, so I've always had black people around me. So I don't think it's until I became an adult I realized, wait, I don't have, I didn't have much black leadership. Um, Can you reflect for a minute on where we work together? What did you think of the space of black leadership? And again, right. we don't even need to name where we worked, right. but um, there were a lot of black children. There are a lot of right. black and staff members. And that was the first time that I experienced black leadership. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that I worked with you, the fact that I worked with other just black, excellent people um, was my first experience of, oh, there is a difference. Mm. You know, when you've had to live for so long, you don't realize there's a different, um, there's a difference when it's not that, that which you just accepted as, you know, um, a reality so like up to that point all my jobs I've had before that and I used to, I was working in Boston for a while have been white leaders and white females so it's not until like you know I got to where we were working that I got to experience black leadership and let's just say I never went back I've since then I haven't not had black leadership and in fact it's of something I look I seek out um after um, that role, after you know our, the work we did together, um, I joined. I went to another organization, and that also had a black leader. And um, but that was an interesting experience. Um, Share some. Hmm. <laughs> that was an interesting experience because um, I think that was you know. I think I understood more deeply um, how even if you are at the top as a black leader, how difficult it must be to um, lead an organization for black children um, and balance this racial thing when it comes to raising money from white dollars to serve black children and how you almost have to tame your blackness sometimes to get some dollars sometimes. Oh, that's interesting. And I never experienced, that was my first time seeing it, although I wasn't in the space necessarily of, um, I wasn't directly, you know, raising dollars or anything like that, but I, from my vantage point, I saw it. And I began to understand for the first time 
that other world <laughs> of as a black, even when you are a black leader um, over an organization, sometimes you have to show up in different ways to get the resources you need. Well, that's interesting. Do you think the work that you was, have to do? Yeah, no, I'm hearing you and I'm wondering if this is a need for I kind of want to say inauthenticity, but that's not truthfully what I'm getting at. And I'm saying like wearing a different hat, right? Right. And right, and we all and you know, to some extent we all do it. That's where they say, you know, code, code switching, switch. girl. And you know, and 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 that's and if you and yes, we all know about that and we all have to do that to some extent but what i experienced i think is that when 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 you know when sometimes that changes you <laughs> you know that changes you know um how you move how you function sometimes if you don't have a good grasp on um you know i don't know it, it's tricky it, it it's, it's sometimes it's more than sometimes it's not just code switching Sometimes we have to be very careful sometimes when we're you know as black leadership that we're that we keep the main thing the main thing and we don't switch our we don't change ourselves that is switching just change ourselves mm-hmm. just to get the resources we need okay, the so work we need to do allow me to play devil's advocate mm-hmm. for a moment but I wonder if that is a survival mechanism in the area of our professions, in the area of um, excelling, especially in the financial uh, space. Right. If you kind of have to change yourself a little bit to be accepted by the majority. Because, again, we realize the that there enough? is a, in, in this country at least, mm-hmm. in this country at least. So to be accepted by the majority of voices or the majority of leadership, mm-hmm. do we require a switch do we require yes I am a black woman in this position and I am a leader mm-hmm. however to be attractive to my counterparts am I now required to change and to have a different perspective a little bit am I required to be a little bit more lenient on some things am mm-hmm. I required to have a heavy hand for things that I normally would not and, and this is the question I wonder. So give me your feedback on that. How and, you know, I've never think? been no CEO, so I can't talk about you know the, the pressure I imagine must exist to write you your colleagues, and in, in that space there is majority, but the reality is there you know not majority. <laughs> um, but but I think that's just where it's so so important as a leader that you know who you are. You're very grounded in who you are so that you don't allow those things to change you mm-hmm. and to change the way you um, just you know move in this space and understand this space and the needs of our people because sometimes you may be the only voice that other people hear and if you're changing so much to accommodate them then they're never going to hear the truth of what they need to hear and I think you know that's my long way of saying you know we have to just be mindful as black leaders sometimes. Yes, obviously we're not gonna come and bulldoze a space per se, because then we're never gonna be heard. But while you're accommodating and sometimes, you know, having to um, pick and choose just what, you know, where you push and where you pull, um, let's not, you know, 
pull away so much that now our own voice is getting lost True. and True. next thing you know your organization is looking less and less like you want it to look right. because you've allowed the other voices that just are a little more greener <laughs> to impact um, what you're trying to do and the people you're trying to serve. So it's interesting because what I'm hearing from you right now is this this caution to being unrecognizable in your voice mm-hmm. and what as you're speaking and I'm listening to you and I'm kind of taking it in and also thinking about what would happen if there were more though would we sure. be as would we feel the pressure mm-hmm. and the pressure sometimes exists when you are the only right. or one one of a few right so if this were not such an anomaly right would this be a much more um uh, what what you call it? Like a streamlined and much more mm. um, open space that we feel way more comfortable, comfortable to, to have the authenticity and to be I able to say so. those things. I think so, and that definitely gets to the larger lo- landscape of the the, the space, um, education, nonprofit, where there just simply isn't as many black leaders at the top um, making those key decisions um, in general. It's still a very white space. It's still um, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, even in Connecticut, I was referencing that report um, that came out this year from the CT. I'm going to get this wrong. CT Alliance. Um, I forget the full name, but they did a, an amazing report. Um, and where you know, of their 290 or nonprofit organizations in this alliance in Connecticut, about 79% is led by white people, 6% is led by black. And I think about another 5% is led by, you know, Hispanic. But it's a lot of white leaders still, you know, um, um, running a lot of these nonprofits and at least, you know, in the world I live in. Um, and even in education, like the education landscape, it's still a lot of, you know, white teachers in front of our black students, white leaders in front of our black students. And, um, and you know, not to make this, you know, like we can't teach black kids or anything like that, but it's just we just need more representation of our own. Um, many times nonprofits, <laughs> nonprofits tend to, you know, they exist to serve the social good, right? Whatever that good, you know, whatever that um, cause is, whether it's poverty, whether it's, you know, child hunger, whether it's education, and who oftentimes are at the top of those lists of needing the help? It's not typically white people. <laughs> You know, so um, so it, it just goes back to um, having if we had more representation at those levels of organization leadership, um, I think those voices would be a little louder in terms of um, what is needed, how it's needed, and all and all that stuff, and um, and there would be. Um, yeah, I think it, it would make other, uh, you know, leaders of color who may feel like the only <laughs> in many rooms, maybe it would make them step up a little bit more or talk a little bit more about um, um, without holding back um, as they, as some may, I'm not saying all, but some may feel they have to now when they're just one of a few, you know. And I think it, it kind of ties it all back together because the work that you're doing and in your consultancy you work with small businesses, you work with nonprofits. Mm-hmm. So for so many of these companies, uh, <laughs> for so many of these companies, regardless of the makeup of the team or regardless of the makeup of the um, organization themselves, 
you are a black leader. So mm-hmm. you get a chance to step into this space mm-hmm. and model what this looks like. Yeah. So now you get a chance to bring this full circle. So you get to step into these areas and lead and to be able to um, step in between. And I love that as a concept, <laughs> by the way. I have to pull that back in <laughs> and step in between. But by the same token, mm-hmm. now as you step back into the larger conglomerate of what this looks like in, in the bigger scale, still might be onlys mm-hmm. in the nonprofit realm. Yeah. And so what are some of the inequities or to flip it on the more more uh, positive side that gives us hope? What are some of the equities that you see? Mm. Not so, not solely inequity. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the things that you see in the nonprofit um, realm? Yeah, um well the the beautiful thing that I'm just super proud of and excited about the work that I do and the consulting that I do is that I am serving mostly black leaders and I'm coming alongside them um, to help them bring their vision to to fruition. And um, so it's a beautiful thing to be in this space where I'm um, helping black leaders, you know, of nonprofit organizations or of, you know, businesses. And, um, and that gives me hope, you know, that there are like, you know, um, there the need is out there to partner with leaders to support leaders and the leaders are here you know and they're and they're wanting that help and they're wanting that support so it's a beautiful thing so that's what give me hope is the fact that um as the nonprofit space continues to expand wildly um that there are more and more black black faces that are leading um some of the causes um there's um, a wonderful organization in New Haven, Prosperity Foundation, you know, that um, is black dollars being raised to serve black people, to serve black communities. Um, so that give, makes me very excited that there's, you know, this space now where, I mean, I think they're one of only three in the country of like completely black funded, black led organization, foundations. Impressive foundations yeah um foundations are usually again it, it goes back to you know a lot of rich white folks you know dollars um and you know it's 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 um you know we always will need money to do the work but it's as we're getting more and more black wealthy people i love seeing the fact that some of that wealth is being put into these foundations to serve the black people so that gives me a lot of hope and excitement for the future um of some of the causes that we see just recycled and not really fixed mm. um, that you know with um, with you know with with the, with those resources um, from people who just you know who have that same experience I hope the the, the causes is moved forward and um, are addressed properly um, and not just a band-aid put over it but actually addressed no, that's so true. So mm-hmm. for the organizations that exist to mm-hmm. help, kudos. I'm proud of us. Mm-hmm. For the leaders that exist to step in, such mm-hmm. as yourself, mm-hmm. girl, I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. You keep on doing what you're doing. But as we wrap up, one of my final questions is, can you bring this back to a perspective of how you grew up in your family? How was mm. this emphasized, this need to, this strength in being a black man or a black woman. Yeah. Or what was this as a conversation as you were growing up? Is this what kind of brought you to the space mm-hmm. of wanting to kind of be infused in the community and always be a part of the community? Bring me back to your home. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's funny. I think, um, you know, first of all, I feel like I grew up in like a little Haiti, 
in my house because you know we only spoke Creole and you know <laughs> and my parents were you know again no nonsense around this whole American thing whatever it means to be American we are Haitian we're gonna grow up as Haitians <laughs> you know and um and looking back you know I absolutely love the fact that I grew up um in a very Haitian household hearing the language having you know my grandmother lived with us all my life and having to, you know, explain American ways to her and um, speak the language. So I think, so so that definitely instilled a love of just my people um, as um, Haitians, but just as black people. Um, and then the community piece, I think, is very much part of my um, church upbringing where everything was done in such a community way, you know? Like, we would spend all the holidays together as a church that we celebrated for Christmas. You know, there wasn't this, like, Christmas exchange at your house. No, the whole church did Christmas exchange, <laughs> okay? For New Year's, all the mothers brought the soup, okay? So we shared the soup. You know, there was just this very family feel, Um growing up um, so heavily involved in the church and the community. And my only regret is that the since we were so kind of consumed with our own Haitian community, we sometimes, you know, was siloed <laughs> and away from the regular community. So that, that was my own discovery of just the, what larger community means. <laughs> um, and that same sense of security and that same sense of togetherness and oneness that I felt um, in, my, in my church community um, as I grew up and, you know, went on my own way in terms of religion and spiritual beliefs I began to understand community much more broadly and but this but the, the foundation of it being the oneness the togetherness um still exists and um I don't know if it's the Libra in me but any injustice that exists you know it, it irks me it uh, very much irks me um because you can't tell me you know we're all the same in terms of blood flows through all of our veins, all children are the same, and yet, depending on resources, we have such vastly different experiences. That, to me, at the in the core of who I am, just is a problem. And I think in all the things I've done in my career, I've been, I think, chasing how do I, you know, um, do my part in addressing that. Um, so, uh, coupled with the way I, you know, grew up. And just what naturally is in me that bothers me, you know, I think that's what um, led me to um, what I'm doing now, helping, you know, and again, my way, like, we all have our own lane, we all have our own thing we're called to do. So find that, you know, and go after that unapologetically. And I think that's what I'm on the road to doing. I'm not, I haven't done it yet. I don't think, I think I'm in the very beginnings of what I hope to accomplish, but that's what I'm on the journey of, is finding what my lane is, what my path is um, towards justice and bringing that justice. And um, and I've found just great joy in helping um, leaders and organizations do the best that they can do because that ultimately serves the people we're all trying to to help, you know. And that's those who who need it and that's those who have, you know, who, who oftentimes um, are just forgotten and don't don't have that same access that we've had, that some of us have had so man I enjoy the way that you've kind of sum summary summarized summarized <laughs> I enjoy the way you've summarized not only your passion and your interest mm -hmm. but what this conversation was mm -hmm. and the highlight being that yes we have this wonderful opportunity as black leaders to step into spaces but there's a larger problem and it's a big mm -hmm. one 
So if we can kind of just chip away and we find where we fit in and we push and we push hard and we, you know, open up our platforms and we speak unapologetically unapologetically. where Mm -hmm. we fit in. But I'm going to wrap up the conversation because we can go to all sorts of other aspects. Mm. But Natasha, thank you so much for having this conversation. It's not quite the fluffy couches that we used to sit in and the coffee that we used to drink and the coffee but pushed me nevertheless to think a different way so thank you so much yes thank you again for having me thanks for listening in today special thanks to our executive producer david deroche and the amazing team at quinnipiac university music is provided by audio hero from their jazz lounge album you can connect with this show on instagram at fluid truth That's F-L-U-I-D-T-R-U-T-H. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. The address is QUPodcasts at qu.edu. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.